0: This morning we'll be looking at the 10th commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. In case you're unaware, this is 10 out of 10. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I'd also like to read to you from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 13 through 21. This is Jesus responding to a question from someone in the crowd. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, It has that parable in it, and it's called The Parable of the Foolish Farmer, appropriately titled. Let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to direct our thoughts as we study His Word. Father, we come now to Your Word, and we need You to make it alive to us or make us alive to it. Lord, we know that your word is living and active. Sometimes we're dull to it, indifferent, hardened even. I pray whatever callousness there might be in our hearts, Lord, you'd use this time and just the sheer power of your word by your spirit to awaken us to your commandment, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon is um, not very creative. It's just the Tenth Commandment. But if I were to give it maybe a subtitle, it would be, What Do You Want? The nature of the Tenth Commandment reveals to us that the whole, really, of the commandments of God are looking far beyond... Mere external conformity to some set of rules. God is looking for a kind of people who from the heart desire what is righteous and good. And so this 10th commandment that calls us not to covet our neighbor's things really points us to the fact that God is and has always been after our heart's obedience. He wants us to desire that which is good, and He wants us not to desire that which is forbidden or wrong. Sometimes we come to sermons, messages, Christian topics and things, and we read something, and we think, wow, that would just be perfect for my friend to hear. (laughs) And, you know, that's not necessarily a wrong thing, and it would be good to share things with them who need to hear them. But for this time, as we think about this commandment, I would ask you that you would not be primarily thinking about who else this may apply to, because this is the kind of text that really drives to your heart. It's asking you to stand uncovered before the Word of God and let your heart be exposed for what kind of desires lay inside of it. Put away the masks, put away the insincerity, Put away the thinking about how others have failed and just let God's word address you almost like a mirror held up so that you can see yourself accurately. Because this commandment drives to your heart and it speaks about your desires. And so this morning I want to to point out three different things to you about this commandment, I have three desires for you. My first desire is that you will see what God forbids in the 10th commandment, really how extensive in nature this prohibition is. And we'll spend the bulk of our time just unpacking what this commandment prohibits. The second desire I have for you is that you will see the glorious gospel that God has given us to address Our very hearts. And then my third desire is that you will see the freedom that comes from believing the gospel and being freed from covetousness and being freed to contentment. So, first, let's see the meaning of this commandment and the extent of it as it applies to your own heart. The meaning isn't all that difficult to discern. But we want to notice a few things about it. First of all, we notice that it is, in fact, the Tenth Commandment. There are ten or nine that have preceded it, and this is the final one. It's not random that this one gets kind of stapled on at the end as an afterthought. As a matter of fact, it seems to, in a way, sum up the whole of the commandments and address really what God is after in His people throughout all that He has commanded previously. It's not... Despite the two, repetition of you shall not covet, it is not two separate commands, as some traditions have it. Some traditions would separate this into two different commands. But the matter is that it's one command, repeated. And the command is, you shall not covet. And for emphasis, it says, again, you shall not covet. When the commandment is repeated in the New Testament by Paul in Romans 7, verse 7, he simply summarizes it as, you shall not covet. It's not that coveting your neighbor's wife is one commandment, and then coveting his um, house is another one. It's one, and it's given samples to us. And there's six samples of what can be coveted that are given to us. They are... Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey. Deuteronomy chapter 5, when this commandment is repeated, adds his field. Again, these samples aren't really random. They're very particular to the kind of life that Israel lived. And we could read through this and think... um, you know, I've, I've really never had a desire for any of my neighbor's oxen or even their donkeys. And I'm sure you realize it's a bit of a naive reading of this, and I'm sure no one takes that simplistic of a, a view of it. And you realize that these were the part and parcel of the life that Israel lived God was pointing out to them the very kinds of things that would become objects of their coveting because they lived in a society where there would be donkeys and there would be oxen. And if you were one of them, you would find very quickly that you would desire your neighbor's ox or your neighbor's donkey. And furthermore, these categories transcend time, really. Because we ourselves, as we live in this world, can be very tempted to look at anything that our neighbor possesses and wish that we had it for ourselves. You can drive through your neighborhood, and you may have the house in your neighborhood that you look at and you think, their windows are nicer than mine. Their roof is newer than mine. Their driveway doesn't have as many cracks as mine does. Their grass is literally greener than my grass. And you look at these things and you desire them or it can go on beyond that. And you look at somebody else's spouse and you think, their spouse has it all together. Their spouse is prettier than mine. Their spouse is holier than mine. Their spouse is nicer than mine. You can go on and on and on and look with eyes of desire for that which is not yours. And the male servants and female servants are kind of contemporized today by those things that help us with our labor, dishwashers and dryers and washing machines, or if you're an employer, employees. And so each one of these, God touches our hearts and shows us the very kinds of things that are so easily desired by our own hearts. And even if you were to just take these six here, there would be enough, but the commandment goes on and adds to it and gives us those six samples, and then it just says, or anything that is your neighbor's. Anything, in other words, that isn't yours and you want it. The focus here is on physical things that are not yours. And those physical things could be personal, as in a wife or as in laborers. Or it could be impersonal, as in property, the land, or house. But really, this is so general and so extensive that it's looking about anything that belongs to your neighbor a reputation, the kind of body that they have, the kind of finances they have, and looking at it and wanting it for yourself. The meaning of this word covet could have a dictionary definition, as one theologian puts it. Coveting is a desire for something that leads to a plan to acquire it. Coveting is a desire for something that leads to a plan to acquire it. In a sense, the word behind our word, covet, is neutral. Our word, covet, is always bad in its connotations. Although sometimes we use it as in positive, I covet your prayers, that's not bad. But generally, covet has negative connotations. But in one sense, the word behind it is neutral. It could be used for a good desire or a bad desire. In this case, of course, it is a bad desire. Again, another theologian says that this verse could be translated as, you shall not set your desires on your neighbor's house, wife, etc. It goes on, if we set our desire upon something, we are out to get what we desire. Thus, to set our desire on something already involves forming a plan ready to be put in motion as soon as opportunity arises. Anyone who sets his desires on his neighbor's house, wife, employees, or animals will not be able to keep his hands off. With premeditation, he intends to strike. The word is often associated with the kind of desiring that leads to a plan to get what you want, and then subsequent to that, there is action taken that goes and tries to get what you want. In Micah chapter 2, verse 2, describes apostate Israel and says of them that they covet fields. That's the desire, the formulation of a plan for how to get them. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. Notice the connection between coveting And seizing. They're not the same. Coveting is the desire and seizing the action, but the coveting leads to the action. We see an example of this in Achan in Joshua chapter 7. After Israel had conquered Jericho, the Lord had told them that they couldn't take anything that they saw there for spoil for themselves, any of the gold or clothing or anything. It was all to be devoted to the Lord, but you know this story. Achan stole And as Achan is describing what he had done, it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21 When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. He saw them. They appealed to him. He desired them. He wanted them. And he formulates a plan for what he is going to do with them. Because we hear that he says, and took them. And then we find out that his plan went beyond the taking. It went into how to stay innocent from what he had done. And he goes on and says, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. He desired it. He planned for it. He went after it. But we have to be clear on this. The coveting is the desiring of it. It is not the taking of it. And when God forbids in his tenth commandment, you shall not covet, he is giving a commandment that indicts anybody who even desires that which is not theirs, even if they have not taken it. And the location of the coveting Although it can lead to a physical action, the location of the coveting is not in our hands or in our feet. It is in our heart. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25, Solomon speaks to his son about the adulterous woman, and he says, Do not desire the same background word used for our covet. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Although the desire leads to a plan, and the plan can manifest itself in action, we have to make sure we get that this is a heart-level sin. It's something going on in the level of your desires. The tricky part about this is that for the other commandments, you shall not. Murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not be bear false witness. All of those, in a sense, could be brought against you with evidence for what you have done. If you've stolen something, you can be caught with the stolen goods. If you bore false testimony, the truth can undo what your lie has done. If you've murdered, there's the body and may have witnesses and the murder weapon an adultery can even have the physical consequences that manifest themselves. But with coveting, that can be, in a sense, concealed. And you could go to a court of law and not necessarily be convicted of the coveting that you have done. But we must not think that our coveting even if not manifesting itself in the action of which we have planned to accomplish, does not have other potential effects. Consider, for example, the husband who has given himself over to a desire for another woman who is not his own. Even if there is no physical action taken, that desire that he has given himself over to is going to have ramifications on his marriage. It's almost inevitable because now he's living an insincere life where in his heart he wants something that he doesn't have and doesn't want what he does have. And there may now be a, a coolness in his demeanor. He may be more absent and not as focused on his wife any longer. He may no longer show any interest in her. And so, it may have effects even if you think you can conceal it. But even if nobody else ever finds out that you desire something that you ought not to desire, there is somebody who always knows. When Samuel was given the task of going to Jesse's house and anointing a king, he had to go through Jesse's son's. And he looked at the sons and surely thought one of them would be king because he looked on the outward appearance, but David was not among them. And the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16:7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord knows your heart and what's going on in there. Every last desire, every last thought, any plotting, any cravings, any covetings, they're not a secret to Him. Some of our desires can be good. The Lord Jesus exemplified a man of pure heart who only desired what his father willed. That was it. That was what he was consumed with, was the glory of his father. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, as Jesus sits down to the Last Supper, he says, "'I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer.'" that earnestly desires the same kind of language used behind the language of coveting. But in this case, it's used positively. He desired what was good and right as he fulfilled the totality of his father's plan for him. We are told in Psalm 19 about a good desire. Again, the same background kind of language that is used for coveting is now used in a positive sense. More to be desired, it says in Psalm 19, more to be desired... Are they, referring to God's word, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb? If you're looking for something to set your desire on, if you are wondering how to kind of uh, corral all of the desires that you have for so many different things and you think, I've got all of these appetites, which should I put them on? Well, God gives you something. He gives you his word and that is to be more desired than anything. If you want to covet something, covet God's word, saturate yourself with that. But we know that our hearts are so full of evil that when we talk about desires, we have to reckon with the evil things that we desire. We also have to understand why these covetings for our neighbor's things are evil. There's a few reasons, I think, more than these, I'm sure, but these are a few maybe you can take note of. Coveting Is evil because it desires what God has forbidden. Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 28, speaks about adultery and he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It says, lustful intent, it could be very simply translated as with desire. You look at a woman with desire. This is a woman who is not your wife. She's forbidden. So coveting is evil because it is desiring what God has forbidden. Of course, that's simply evil because it is saying, I want the very thing God says no to. And if God is all good and all righteous, then I want that which is unrighteous. He wants for me what is good. Coveting is evil because it desires what God has forbidden. Coveting is also evil because it has no care for your neighbor. You might think, you know, coveting is, is personal. It's just in my heart. So what does it matter for my neighbor? Well, Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In Romans chapter 12, Paul unpacks for us what it looks like to love your neighbor. And one of the things that he says... For us is in Romans 12:15 he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's a manifestation of love. When someone has something rejoicing over you come alongside them and you share their joy that's love. When someone faces loss and you come alongside them and you weep with them over their loss that's love. But when you are coveting your neighbor's things and they gain something else that you want, you are not going to rejoice with them. And when you're coveting your neighbor's things, and they face loss, you're not going to weep with them. And so you weep when they rejoice, and you rejoice when they weep, if you are coveting their things. Oh, maybe you're good enough to Put on a good face. But in your heart, you're happy they lost because they have so much already. Or when they gain, you resent it because they have so much already. Coveting is evil because it shows no real care for your neighbor. Coveting is evil because it shows no trust in and love for God with thankfulness for what he has provided for you. When you're coveting, you're going up to the perimeter fence of the things that God has put in your life, and you're trying to look over it on your tippy toes to see everything that everybody else has, and you think of all the things that God hasn't given you while you have your back to all the things he has given you. When you walk into your neighbor's home discontentedly and want what they have, you want their children, you want their children's behavior, you want their wife or maybe their possessions or maybe their car or maybe their decorations or maybe their clothing or maybe their reputation or maybe their body. You deny the sovereign goodness of the God who has blessed you in innumerable ways. You become like the child on Christmas who unwraps his gift and has a whole stack of gifts to the side and looks at the one toy that his sibling got that he didn't get and all of Christmas is ruined. Don't we do the same when we covet? We exchange an opportunity to express gratitude to our God and we exchange it for a moment of grumbling over what he hasn't given us. Coveting kind of fills our heart with a greed that displaces gratitude and contentment and trust in our good God. It can be hard when you're going through a season of of loss or of difficulty to look around and see others who seem to have it all together and things are going swimmingly. And you think, why can't I get that? Why won't God give that to me? The bedrock of our faith is that God is good to us all the time. That he who did not spare his own son, is he going to keep anything back from us? He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly, but here's the thing. God is wise in what he gives us and he knows what we need and he also knows what we don't need I joke around with people from time to time as you listen to like a, a preacher or some lecturer who just has this monster intellect and you know doesn't even need notes to speak or doesn't seem like he needs to prep at all he just reads a book and in like five minutes and remembers everything and look at a person like that and think wow they've got an amazing mind God did not entrust to me that kind of mind because he knows if I had it, I would use it for evil. We remember, God knows us. He knows our frame. He hems us in behind and before. And he knows what is good for us. The Lord is good and he does good. And when you covet, you undermine your opportunity for gratitude, And for trust in his goodness. And so coveting is evil for those reasons. Also mention briefly that coveting is evil because it hurts society and causes disputes. We need to remember that these commandments were given to Israel as foundational instructions for the building up of the new society they're going to have as they go into the promised land. They're to define them. And they're really for their good. It was to show what a society was to be like. But a society that possessed a covetous people is a society that is going to crumble because everybody wants what everybody else has. And that is going to make a society that is going to not love each other, but ultimately hate each other and manifest that hatred and acts of Anger or bitterness, theft or adultery. And we see a little bit better why this commandment comes at the end because you kind of build back up from here that if you are willing to covet your neighbor's things, even if you don't steal them, if you simply desire them, you may be a little bit more likely to kind of slander your neighbor and say, you know, Joe cheats on his taxes. That's why he has money for that extra vacation every year. I pay my taxes. Joe doesn't. And you don't have a clue about Joe's taxes. You're just assuming that because how else could he have the money? And if you're willing to do that because you covet his things and you're willing to slander him, well, maybe you're willing to take the next step and just Take what's his for your own and you steal and break the eighth commandment. Or you go to the next step and you think, well, I despise Joe because of all the things he has. I want his things and I especially want his wife. And you take her and commit adultery with her. Or maybe you go to the next step and your hatred of him boils over to such a degree because you want his things that you're willing to take his own life to get what he has. And in thereby doing, you undermine all of these commandments, not all at once, but perhaps in different ways. And ultimately, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, e- that you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do you hear Paul equate there the one who's covetous with the idolater? It's breaking the second command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And I think the thought process that Paul has in mind here is when you're coveting, you're so desiring that which is forbidden that you're almost making it like an object of worship because you want that so badly that your life revolves around that desire. And it's effectively worship. And in doing so, you've supplanted God, the true God, with this thing that becomes the object of your desire and adoration and pursuits. And you become effectively an idolater. And idolaters have no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so, this commandment is really a, a bedrock to a society that is going to leave God in His place and submit to Him. This command is so personal because as I've been speaking about this, I, I can't even begin to unpack the things that come to your mind as the application of this. And I hope that there have been things that have come to mind. I was telling somebody after the first service that as I was preaching this, the Lord was bringing to mind some things in my own heart that were being unveiled as coveting. And so the application of this is so challenging because it's the desire of your heart What's there? What do you covet? If you were to be able to just take a, a sampling of your thoughts maybe over the course of one hour of any day of the week, and you could just kind of scoop them up in your hand and just kind of sort them out for a moment and and categorize your thoughts and attach them to something that you want because ultimately it's all attached to some desire, something that you want. And you're to try to categorize them into what are your desires. I think that you might be shocked over the course of even one hour, the desires that drive you for what you want. Desires that really unveil a kind of selfishness and a pursuit of your own greedy gain, whether it be for your own reputation or for your own ease or for the detriment of somebody else or even unthinkingly to ease annoyances in your life, the desires that are driven by all kinds of things but not driven by a desire to do God's will. So this command is... So personal and really leads us to the second subject that I want you to consider which is the glorious gospel of God's grace. Because I'm convinced that 100% of the people in this room are covetous. There are no exceptions. The reason I'm Convinced of this is, one, my own heart. And two, the Apostle Paul, when he goes through the gospel in the book of Romans, and he talks about the sinfulness of of man in chapters 2 and 3, and then 3 through 6, he's talking about the the gospel of redemption and how it works out in our life. Then he comes to chapter 7, and he, he personalizes it in a sense and comes to his own wrestlings with his own heart And Paul says in Romans 7 that he would not have known his own sinfulness if it were not for the command, you shall not covet. And when that commandment broke on his heart, it unveiled all kinds of unrighteousness in him and revealed to him the magnitude of the sinfulness of his sin. And so this commandment really lays us all at the bottom of the totem pole. None of us really above the other because we're all breakers of the 10th commandment. All idolatrous, covetous people on ourselves. But this is why it, of course, leads us to the glorious gospel. Because the same God who gave the law is the God who gave His Son And if you've been convinced that your heart is covetous, there's really only one thing that you do, which is look to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost I think part of what Paul has in mind is that Romans 7 context where he knows his sinfulness because of the commandment you shall not covet. And Paul writes at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? I think this is the great thing about the gospel, maybe that's an overstatement because there's so many great things about the gospel. But if we're talking about this 10th commandment, it hits the level of our desires. We might think, you know, with the commandment, you shall not murder, you think, okay, I'm going to keep myself from not murdering. You not, shall not commit adultery. Okay, I'll, I'll keep myself from committing adultery shall not steal, okay, I won't, I'm not going to take anybody's things, I'm not going to bear false witness, okay, I'll tell the truth about other people. But you come to the level of desires, and you think, I have all of these desires raging in me, all these things that I want, 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 all the time. How can I change that? It's like telling me to stop liking chocolate ice cream and start liking Brussels sprouts like that. And who's able to do that? And you begin to despair of yourself. You think, my heart is so corrupt, so defiled. What hope do I have? How can I possibly change this thing around and turn the ship's direction? My heart is a raging sea of desires that I cannot tame. Who's going to save me? And you say with Paul, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And you give up all hope because it's not in me, but this is the gospel of God. You don't need to do it. He gives his son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes on and says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one who brings the change. He's the one who came to save sinners. And he did it. By going to the cross, becoming the cursed man. If you want to see what someone who is cursed for violating the law looks like, look to Jesus on the cross. A man forsaken, abandoned, scourged, whipped, beaten, mocked. So much so that as he hangs on the cross, he acknowledges his own forsakenness by God. That's a cursed man, and that's what we all deserve for our sin and rebellion, for breaking any one of these commandments. We realize when Christ hung on the cross, it was not because he was covetous. Not in the slightest. It was because he went there in the great exchange. And he stood there for you and me covetous idolaters that we are. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's only in Christ you can receive the forgiveness for the sin of coveting. There is salvation nowhere else. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about how though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Why? Because God is the one who cleanses us. Psalm 51, cleanse me, O God, purge me with hyssop. 1 John 1.9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're realizing how black your heart is with covetousness, there is only Christ who can cleanse you. So that commandment shows us really our need for the glorious gospel. Thirdly, finally, and quickly, I want you to see the freedom that comes from the gospel as it regards the 10th commandment. It's not that the gospel now frees us to just go on with our desires as they always were. It brings transformation. I think one of the best aspects of my own conversion was as the realization began to occur that my desires because of Christ's work in my life have changed. I like Brussels sprouts. Where did that come from? Or better, I like righteousness and holiness and love God, and His Son, and His Spirit. Where did that come from? Well, that's the work of God in our hearts. This is why Jesus said, you must be born again. Or in the Old Testament, God says, I will circumcise your heart, or elsewhere He says that He's going to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. A new heart, with it, New desires. Paul's example is really amazing because he was convicted by that 10th commandment. And yet, after coming to Christ, he's able to say to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 33 I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Where did that come from in Paul? Well, only Christ. Not only did he no longer covet, but now he became content with what he had. So that he can write in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He learned the opposite of covetousness. He learned Contentment. I think that's the beauty of God's ways. Is coveting is really a miserable thing. Because you desire what you're not allowed to have. And if you get it, it's like gravel in your mouth. It's never satisfied. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Consider how good it is to be freed from covetousness. It is more delightful than coveting. To be freed from it, to contentment, to give up greed for thanksgiving. Covetous people are not happy people. Have you been freed from that? Do you walk in the freedom that's been given to you in Christ Jesus? Remember, this is a personal command. It's for everybody, but you yourself need to deal with it. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Are the desires still raging in you? you come to Christ and confess your sins and seek the cleansing that he offers don't let covetousness get a foothold don't let it continue give it up find contentment in Christ and thank him for what he's given you in doing so you'll live out the 10th commandment let's pray Father because you speak so Plainly to our desires, you know all that they are. We're not hidden from you. You know our hearts, Lord. Father, would you forgive us for the many things that we desire that you have not given us? Desires that have gone awry. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom to know the difference between good desires that we should pursue and covetous desires that need to be put to death. And Father, would you help us to do that? We acknowledge that this is not something we can change on our own. Fill us with your word. Renew our minds as we seek you. Give us new desires. Desire for your will, that which is good. And may we hunger, Father, by your strength for righteousness. Satisfy us, Lord. With your great love, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.